This morning we will be considering Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. These are the words of God. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padam Aran, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary." Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, open now your word to us by the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand these events. Help us to see your wonders, your ways, and your wisdom as you were working with your people of old to speak the gospel truth to them even then. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) So with the death of Abraham earlier in chapter 25... Scripture brings us to the next generation. And we see right off the bat similar trials and themes as we have already seen with Abraham and Sarah. For example, like Sarah, Rebekah is barren. And though our text doesn't spend a lot of time describing it, if you compare verse 20 with verse 26, you'll see that she was barren for 20 years. For Isaac was 40 when they got married, and he was 60 when Rebekah gave birth. So Isaac and Rebekah spent 20 years hoping and praying for children. Verse 21 tells us specifically that Isaac pleaded with God for Rebekah. And in the Hebrew, it makes it clear specifically that Isaac is not praying just separately from her, but is literally standing before her and pleading with the Lord. So this was a long-term hardship to which Isaac and Rebekah responded in a godly way through persistent faith and prayer. And we need to note that Rebekah here is part of a pattern 
of barren women in the line of Christ. We have already seen that Sarah was barren. Now, Rebecca is barren. In the next generation, Rachel is going to be barren. As we go forward, we'll see more. We'll see, for example, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, is barren. We will see that the mother of Samson is barren. And when we get to the New Testament, we will see that Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, is barren. And finally, we will come to Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is barren in the sense that she cannot conceive precisely because she is a virgin. So by God's design, all of these very significant, important, and godly women in Scripture were incapable of conceiving. And by God's design, he will eventually miraculously cause each one of these women to conceive and give birth to a son who will not only carry on the covenant and the line of Christ, but also will be what the Bible calls a type, that is, a living picture of Christ in some important way. And this is one of the main ways that God was preaching the gospel over and over in the Old Testament. And ultimately, we will come to the Virgin Mary, who, by the miracle of incarnation, will conceive Jesus Christ the one to whom all these previous sons were pointing. Now what God is saying through all of these barren women who ultimately conceived by miracle of God is that the human race is incapable of conceiving the promised seed, the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, whom God promised would one day crush the head of the serpent who we later find out is also called the seed of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed, who we will still later find out is also called the son of David, the one who will sit on an everlasting throne ruling over heaven and earth. Though God has promised this Savior, the human race is incapable of conceiving this Savior. And the point is, God must miraculously intervene. He must intervene through the incarnation for this promised one to ever come about. And that's, that's part of the gospel that God is preaching to people. Even hundreds and thousands of years ago in the Old Testament, he was preaching this gospel message over and over. So coming back to Isaac and Rebekah, God hears Isaac's prayers and Rebekah conceives, verse 21. But when she does, a new trial arises. Her pregnancy is extremely tumultuous. It's chaotic. There's something going on within her and it is extremely distressing. In verse 22, Rebekah says, if all is well, why am I like this? And in the Hebrew, it's actually stronger than that. She says words to the effect of, if it is this way with me, why am I even here? In other words, she is tempted to despair of life itself because it is so distressing what is going on within her. But she does not despair of life itself. She responds in faith and she inquires of the Lord. Verse 22, and the Lord answers her. 
We don't know. It doesn't tell us exactly how the Lord answers her. We don't know whether it was through a dream or a vision, but we are told very directly that the Lord spoke to Rebecca, and he tells her in so many words that she has twins within her who shall become two different nations, and that the rules of normal human inheritance and headship will be turned upside down, reversed, because the older shall serve the younger. Now, if you look at the words that God actually speaks in verse 23, you will see that they have a certain nature and and structure. They have a parallel structure and they have a poetic nature in which God makes two points, each of them twice. Two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now what God is indicating through this kind of poetic parallel structure is that this is a formal prophecy and promise of the Lord. It will certainly come to pass. And we have another pattern here, which is the reversal of the rules of normal human inheritance and headship. Because normally, the firstborn would be the heir and the covenant head of the clan. But we have already seen God develop a pattern of reversing that. We first saw this in the Bible all the way back with Cain and Abel. More recently, we saw it with Isaac, who was the second-born son, receiving headship and the inheritance over Ishmael, who was the firstborn son, who was circumcised right next to his father Abraham when circumcision was first given. Now we see the same thing with Jacob and Esau. We will see the same thing again with Jacob's sons because it will be Joseph who is next to the youngest of all the brothers who will inherit over all the older brothers. We will continue to see this pattern. For example, we will see it with King David who was the youngest son who receives the throne and the covenant headship and is God's uh, sovereign choice to be the type, the picture of Christ over all his older brothers. What God is signifying through this pattern is that his salvation, his covenant, his promises are not about normal human inheritance or bloodlines. They are about faith in the promised one, the promised seed of the woman, who is also the promised seed of Abraham, who is also the promised son of David, who is one person, Jesus Christ. You see, the point that God keeps making here is that there is only one person in all of human history who inherits the redemptive promises of God in his own right. And that is Jesus Christ who the New Testament tells us is the last Adam, literally the eschaton Adam, the eternal Adam, the final Adam, the head of a new human race born of the Holy Spirit and the inaugurator of a new creation delivered from death. Anybody else 
who would inherit the promises of God must do so by being united to Christ by faith. So this is another way that God was preaching the gospel over and over and over. He's preaching the gospel, deliverance, salvation, redemption from Satan, sin, and death comes one way. It comes through the promised one. And the human race, all of us, are completely incapable of conceiving this one. God must do it miraculously. Furthermore, this promised one is the only one who can inherit God's promises in his own right. All the rest of us must look to him in faith. And so God keeps making the point over and over and over that that is the heart of the covenant. That's the heart of all the promises, faith in the promised one. He alone can receive. We are joined to him by the spirit who works faith within us, Our faith is in Him, and that is how we inherit Galatians 3.16. The promises were made to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. God did not say, and to seeds as of many, but as to seed as of one, who is Christ. In other words, He's the only one who receives. Then Paul goes on to make the point, if we are Christ's, then we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So God keeps making the point over and over and over in the Old Testament that it does not matter if you have Abraham's blood in your veins. If you do not have his faith in the promised one in your heart. So that is the point. You see again God preaching the gospel over and over So when Rebecca delivers in verse 24, she has twins, even as the Lord indicated. And the differences and the struggle between them is visibly clear right off the bat. The firstborn has a very ruddy or reddish complexion, and he is covered with hair like a hairy garment, literally like a hairy cloak. So he is called Esau, which means hairy, verse 25. The secondborn looks nothing like him, so obviously they are fraternal twins, not identical twins. And what stands out about the secondborn is that he has hold of his brother's heel. So he is called Jacob, which literally means one who grabs the heel, verse 26. Now these physical differences are going to find expression in the character and values of the boys as they mature, which is what we see in verse 27, which gives us a vignette, uh, a little snapshot of the boys as they are maturing into manhood. So they are somewhere in their mid to late teens or perhaps their early 20s. It says, So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Now, unfortunately... Our English translations here tend to give us very wrong ideas about Jacob and Esau and what has really now become a settled stereotype which goes like this. Esau is an outdoorsman. He's a man's man and a jolly good fellow. Jacob, on the other hand, is an effeminate mama's boy 
who hangs out with the women in the tents rather than the men in the field. And so from every human standpoint, Esau is the good guy that all of us guys would like to hang around with and all the girls would like to marry some guy like him. And Jacob is basically a snake who none of us men would like to hang around with and none of the girls who had any sense would like to marry anybody like him. But in spite of their character and their merits, God displays the gospel by choosing Jacob for salvation and not Esau. Now, I want to submit to you that when we look carefully at what the Bible teaches, we're going to see that this stereotype is incorrect in almost every respect. The only part of that stereotype that is correct is that God displays the gospel in these events. But even there, it is not in the way that we typically think. So let's look carefully at what the Bible actually teaches us here. First of all, let's look at the description of Jacob as a mild man dwelling in tents. The first problem is that mild is not the best translation of the Hebrew word here, nor is quiet or peaceful or plain, which are some of the other English translations you see here. The Hebrew word for mild here literally means complete. Now I ask you, if this verse had said, in contrast to Esau, Jacob was a complete man, would that kind of give you a different picture of Jacob than saying that he was a mild man? I think it might. This is the same word that is used in the Bible of Noah and Job, two of the towering believing men of the Old Testament. Genesis 6 verse 9, Noah was a just man, perfect, that's our word, perfect in his generations, not meaning sinless, but meaning mature, complete. In other words, a, a mature believer. Noah walked with God. Job 1 verse 1, Job was blameless, that's our word, and upright, the one and one who feared God and shunned evil. This same word is what God calls Abraham to be in Genesis 17 verse 1. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that's our word. It is what God calls all Israel to be. Deuteronomy 18:13. You shall be blameless. That's the same word before the Lord your God. So this Hebrew word used of Jacob is one strongly associated with faith, fruitfulness, and spiritual maturity. The second thing that gives us a wrong impression about Jacob is the statement that he was a man dwelling in tents, verse 27, which we take to be another indication of unmanliness, but that's not accurate. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of Jacob's 12 sons were all men who dwelt in tents because they were shepherds and herders who were sojourning in the land, so they moved about. Look at Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. 
By faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city whose builder and maker is God. So dwelling in tents is not at all associated with unmanliness or weakness, but rather with the life of those who were trusting God's promises, living by faith in the promised land, even though it was still in the hands of unbelievers. So properly understood, verse 27 is a very positive description of Jacob, who was anything but a weak and unsubstantial man. And we will see that going forward. When we get to Genesis 29, for example, we will see Jacob's physical strength, his initiative, and his industriousness when he travels to the area of the city of Haran, and he comes there to a well where shepherds have gathered to water their flocks, but they're all waiting for the large stone to be moved off the mouth of the well. Jacob asks them while they're waiting, and they say they have to wait till all the flocks are gathered so you have all of the shepherds there and they can move the large stone. Meanwhile, Rachel, this is the first time Jacob meets Rachel, Rachel comes with her father's flocks to water them. And so Jacob isn't going to make her wait. So he, by himself, rolls the stone away that would normally take several men to do. And so Jacob is a very strong, responsible, and industrious man. That's the picture we get. In Genesis 30 and 31, we will see the results of Jacob laboring for Laban over the course of 20 years. The results are Laban starts with a very small flock and herd of animals. After after Jacob has been supervising all of his operations for 20 years, he has very, very large. He's become very, very prosperous. Further, we will see that Jacob served Laban with great integrity and at personal cost to himself. Genesis 31, 38. These 20 years I have been with you. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. In the day the drought consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep departed. So this he's not a laptop guy. He is out in the field. This is hard work. He's out in the hot sun. He's in the cold nights. He's in sleepless nights. This is hard, hard, difficult work. And Jacob is often thought of, because of we have such a stereotype about him, he's often thought of as taking advantage of Laban, deceptively increasing his own flock at Laban's expense. But that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible actually says is that it is Laban who deceived and took advantage of Jacob, changing his wages ten different times to Laban's advantage, promising him Rachel while giving him Leah. And so God ultimately appears to Jacob in a dream and tells him that he has seen all that Laban is doing to him. 
God does not appear and say, I have seen all that you are doing to Laban. He says, I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. And he shows what Jacob what to do so that the flocks are going to produce the spotted and the speckled and all of that kind of stuff. This all came from God speaking to Jacob in a dream. He shows him what to do so that God will use those circumstances sovereignly to bring about some proper just restitution from Laban uh, by causing Jacob's flocks to increase. And then God tells Jacob to leave Laban in the land of Haran and to return to the land of his family. That's in Genesis chapter 31. So big picture, what we see with Jacob going forward is consistent of verse 27's description of him as a complete man, a strong, mature, capable man who trusted God and cared about the things of God. Now, turning to Esau, he is not depicted favorably. He is not depicted, as we often picture him, as a jolly good fellow, a good all-round guy who likes the outdoors. Rather, he is depicted as a man who cares for nothing but hunting and living for the moment. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 and 16 where it says, look carefully, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, fornicator here is not being used in the sexual sense. It's being used in the spiritual sense of one who is spiritually unfaithful to the living God. Because Esau, instead of reserving his highest love and loyalty and devotion to the one true God, is instead spreading around his spiritual affections and loyalties to false gods and idols. That's what the word means in this context. The word profane literally means godless in the sense of not serving, not loving, not honoring or worshiping the one true God. So Hebrews 12:16 tells us very clearly what we should be taking away from our text in Genesis 25. Esau had no heart for God, nor did he care for the things of God. That's why he was not a complete man. He was more like a beast, which is the picture you get from the fact that he's born covered as with a hairy cloak. That's like a beast. And that's the way he acted. In Daniel chapter 7, when God portrays the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar from paganism to honoring the one true God, the way he pictures it is initially Nebuchadnezzar is a lion. So he may be a powerful beast, He may be considered a regal beast, but he is nevertheless a beast. He's not a true man. But when Nebuchadnezzar comes to faith, it's pictured by the lion standing up on his hind legs, standing up erect like a man, and it says, and he was given the heart of a man. So he's pictured as going from beast to true man by going from being pagan, idolater, 
to worshiper and server of the one true God. And that's really the contrast the Bible is showing us between Esau and Jacob. And so we're going to see this idea of Esau just living for the moment. No heart for God or for the things of God. We'll see this confirmed in chapter 26 because Esau is going to take not one wife, but two wives at the same time, and both of them are going to be pagans. They're both going to be Hittites, which is one of the Canaanite tribes, and they're going to be constant sources of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And consider this lesson that's just commented for us in Hebrews chapter 12 about Esau. Remember, Hebrews 11 and 12 is where we have what's often called the Hall of Fame of Faith, where you have all these different Old Testament believers who are set before us as positive examples for us to emulate. There are only two negative examples given in all of that. Cain and Esau. And Esau is the only one mentioned in detail as to exactly what his problem was and why we should want to be the opposite of what he was. So now that we've kind of walked around this and gotten our biblical bearings in terms of how to understand Jacob and Esau, let's return to our text in Genesis 25. We need to keep in mind here as the context for this whole cooking incident, the backdrop is that Esau regularly hunted and cooked for his father. He hunted and prepared wild game for his father who really loved it. He had a taste for it. And this is specifically why Isaac favored Esau. It wasn't just kind of a favoritism that somehow he liked this one better. No, he liked the cooking. He liked the game. And um, when we get to chapter 27, we're going to see Isaac tell Esau, go out to the field, hunt game for me, make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. And we're going to see at that point that in spite of God's very clear promise and prophecy that the older will serve the younger, in other words, Jacob will be the heir and the covenant head, nevertheless, at that point, Isaac will be determined to give that blessing to Esau. In other words, by the time we get to chapter 27, and that's going to be another number of years, By that time, Isaac is not in a good place spiritually when that chapter opens. Now, God is going to get him into a good place spiritually by the time that chapter ends. But that's going to be by shocking uh, Isaac awake to who he should be and where he should be. But that's not where he is when the chapter begins. In the beginning of this slide is what we see here in chapter 25, verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Now you have to remember that food in the Bible is constantly associated with fellowship because that's what a table with food does. It produces fellowship. It confects 
the family. It confects the family of God around what? Our fellowship with God and one another. And so if the food is connected with fellowship with God and his people, it, is a, it, mean, it stands for life and blessing. That's what it's about. If the food is connected with turning away from God and turning away from his people, then it is connected with cursing and death. This is why we see food repeatedly being involved in testing and temptation in the Bible. We see that with Adam's temptation in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. What's the context? Food. We see it with Christ, the final Adam, his temptation in Matthew chapter 4. What's the context? Food. We also see it in between with the testing of Israel in the wilderness in Exodus 16 and following. What do so many of the trials involve? Food. The absence of food. What food? That's why when the devil tempts Christ, after 40 days of fasting, he says, turn these stones to bread. Jesus replies by saying, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he's quoting there Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. In other words, this was the lesson God was teaching Israel in the wilderness with all of the food trials. This is also why Jesus tells the disciples in John chapter 4, when they know he's hungry and they're urging him to eat, he says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, when you put all this together, what it comes down to to this. The most fundamental lesson of life is this. The real source of life is the food that is more fundamental than the food we place in our mouths. And that is the food of obeying the word and doing the will of God. That is the source of life. The food we put in our mouths should be the food around which fellowship with his, with God and his people takes place. The food that Esau hunted and prepared was not that food. And the fellowship that Isaac was creating with Esau based on that food was not good. It was not going in a good direction. Isaac should have been leading Esau in a different direction, toward the Lord and his word and his will, instead of following Esau in his carnality and his shallowness. So the nature of the meal and the table and the fellowship it creates reveals something deep and important about those who partake of the meal. That's one of the other lessons. And that's what the meal that Jacob prepared of lentil soup did regarding Esau. It revealed him for exactly who he was. Someone who cared nothing for God or his blessing or the responsibility of covenant headship, and therefore one who cared nothing for his birthright. In verse 29, Esau comes in from hunting in the field, 
and sees Jacob has cooked some sort of a, a stew or soup, which turns out to not be fancy gourmet wild game like he cooks for his father, but simple lentil soup. But Esau does not care. He just, he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't care. It, it has a reddish color and he just calls it red stuff. And that's the way the Hebrew actually reads here in verse 30. What Esau says to Jacob is, let me gulp down some of the red stuff, that red stuff. That's the way he says it. Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Verse 31. Now, it's important for us to realize that this was not uncommon in the ancient world. The buying and the selling of birthrights was an accepted practice because there was a lot of responsibility that went with them. And note that there is no deception in this scenario. It is all wide open what is going on. There's no deception here. There's no duress here. There is no entrapment here. The shocking part is not Jacob asking Esau to sell because it is obvious that Esau cares for nothing for the responsibilities that go along with this birthright. The shocking part is that Esau considers the proposition, he assesses the value of his birthright, and he finds it to be less than a meal of lentil soup and bread. I am about to die, he says. So what is this birthright to me? Verse 32. This shows a completely skewed and self-absorbed, frankly, set of values. Esau was hungry, yes, but he was not about to die, as it's obvious from the context. So he greatly exaggerates his present feelings and appetites And he greatly minimizes the value of his birthright. And so having assessed them, he takes the meal. He makes an oath to trade his birthright for a single meal of lentil soup and bread. And the way the Hebrew reads here, again, is very, very stark. And it shows his shallowness. He ate and drank and rose and went. Just that fast. Then the Bible, in a very unusual move, because usually the Bible will display these kind of things to us, but will not actually state the moral of the story. It usually leaves us for us to figure that out. But here the Bible actually states it, lest we miss it. Esau despised his birthright, verse 34. He held it to be worthless because it didn't do anything for him in the moment. Now, nothing negative is said in this context about Jacob. But we do know that Jacob being fallen, even though he was a complete mature believer, he nevertheless fell short, even as we do, even though he was a complete man. We're not told of any shortcomings of Jacob here, shortcomings. But if there is one, It would not be in his valuing and desiring the birthright. In other words, Esau was fleeing from the responsibility that went with the birthright. Jacob wanted the responsibility. And this is one of the characteristics, men and young men coming up, this is one of the characteristics of a godly, mature man. He's not only willing to accept responsibility, he wants it. 
He wants responsibility, godly responsibility. He wants godly responsibility. He wants that weight on his shoulder. And that's what we see with Jacob. But if there is a shortcoming here, it would be in um, grabbing for the birthright rather than waiting for the Lord to providentially bestow it pursuant to his promise and his prophecy. And that would be consistent with Jacob's grabbing of Esau's heel during birth. Waiting rather than grabbing, that's another difficult thing that we have to learn for in wife. It is good for us to desire uh, the things that God calls us to be. Think about what God the Father set before his son, the Lord uh, Jesus. What he set before his son, Jesus, was becoming Lord of head, uh, of heaven and earth, sitting on the throne of God with all authority in heaven and earth and all judgment committed to you. We're told in Hebrews 12 that that was the joy that was set before Jesus by which Jesus endured the cross, despising the same. It was the joy of what God the Father had promised. Now, if what you're going after is sitting on the throne of God with all authority in heaven and earth and all judgment committed to you, you know what I'd call that? I'd call that ambitious. That's ambitious. You cannot get more ambitious than that. But Jesus was ambitious in the right way because what was, how was his ambition channeled? He says, I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. I do not seek glory from other men, but the glory which my Father can bestow. That is what made Jesus different from all the rest of us in his ambitions. It was not being ambitious or not. It was ambitious, but he was ambitious in the right way, by seeking the glory of his Father doing his will and waiting for the Father to bestow his blessings upon him. And so we are told um, in, in Hebrews chapter 5 that when Jesus received the honor of being high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, that this was not something that Christ took to himself. Okay, In other words, he didn't grab for it. He honored his father. He waited for his father to Bestow it. And that's the attitude that we're supposed to have as well. If Jacob fell short in this context, it was in this way, by grabbing. It was not the thing he was going for. That's something God had promised, but it was for grabbing for it rather than waiting it. Um, now, finally, as we can draw toward conclusion, it is important for us to keep in mind that just as we saw previously with Ishmael, Esau here being rejected as heir and covenant head does not mean that he is beyond the reach of God's grace and the opportunity for faith and repentance. God's prophecy, the older shall serve the younger, is talking about God's sovereign choice, yes, 
But it's talking about his sovereign choice of Jacob over Esau as the covenant head and heir in the line of Christ. It is not talking about Esau's personal salvation. That is still an open matter, just like it was with Ishmael. Remember, when Ishmael was sent away for mocking Isaac, who was the picture of Christ and therefore the heir and the covenant head, God specifically appeared to Ishmael after he was being sent away. And at the end of Ishmael's life, he seems like a different guy because how do we last see him? Standing shoulder to shoulder with Isaac, burying their father, Abraham, burying him right next to Sarah within the promised land. In other words, very encouraging behavior. We are not told God's final verdict on Ishmael in terms of personal salvation, but we see very encouraging conduct in the end. And we're going to see the same pattern with Esau. In chapter 25, our text today, there is nothing encouraging about Esau. He's the very picture of a shallow, carnal, godless man. But when we get to chapter 33, after Jacob has been gone for 20 years, and he's finally coming back to Canaan, and Esau is riding out to meet him with 400 men, and Jacob just knows that his brother is going to come and slaughter them all. What happens when they actually meet is that Esau gives Jacob a big hug. And all these gifts of flocks and everything that Jacob has to give to Esau to try to appease him uh, to save their lives, Esau asks what all this stuff is for, and he says, well, it's to appease you. Esau says in so many words, I appreciate the thought, brother, but you keep them. I have plenty. In other words, Esau seems like a completely different man when we get to chapter 33. It's very gracious conduct. It's very thoughtful conduct. And so we aren't told God's final verdict on Esau. But this behavior that we see in chapter 33, like Ishmael's before him, it is very hopeful conduct. It's very encouraging. And so we do not have time to completely complete everything you see on your outlines this morning that would take us too long. And so I'm going to wrap up here by simply calling your attention and reminding you the one takeaway that I would want you to have from all of this. A lot of moving parts here. Is just how God keeps preaching the gospel over and over and over in multiple ways to these saints These saints were living almost 2,000 years before Christ, who is 2,000 years before us. This was a long, long time before Christ came. And yet look at the gracious love of God, how he keeps preaching the gospel. He preaches the gospel through the barrenness of all these godly women. All these women who think, God has forgotten me. God has forsaken me. I'm accursed of the Lord. What actually was happening is God was saying, I need a really special woman. 
to preach the gospel through. That's what was happening. Through him inverting the inheritance over and over. It's not because he hated firstborns and he likes younger sons better. No, it's because he's trying to point out this is not about normal human inheritance and bloodlines. It's about faith in the one promised one who is Jesus Christ. We see him preaching the gospel just over and over all these different ways with every single generation. That shows us the love of God toward us and how he is constantly pointing to his son. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.